Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture reading is Romans 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. All right, thank you. Hey, good morning. Okay, we're not doing Matthew. You may have noticed we're doing Romans. Um, Matthew, we've, we've been going through that book for a good 47 weeks now. Um, and he's been hitting this, yeah, it's laughable. There's this constant, there's this constant theme where he says, um, here's, how, here's God's people, um, here's the people who are not God's people. How do you interact with them? Um, people who um, are basically sort of like Israel in the ancient in the ancient world, um, they were very nationalistic. Everyone around them was very nationalistic. And so how do you interact with these people? And God was basically saying, we move towards them. Uh, we're trying to reconcile with them and make peace. Um, and basically, God is br- trying to bring people in um, instead of push people out and keep them out. So there's, that whole conversation has been happening over and over and over. And it, it's very kind of repetitive. But the question that always rises up is, okay, well, within the church... When we are tribal, when we have differences, what do we do? How do we? Because I don't know if you know this, there's some 34,000 Christian denominations in the world. That means that many times Christians have said, I disagree with you, I'm taking my ball, I'm going home. So, uh, and they go start a new church. Um, and so, is this what Paul intended? Is this what Jesus intended? I would argue absolutely not. Um, and so this morning... Um, partly because I want to read another book other than Matthew today, um, and partly because this is really applicable. We're going to go to Romans. Here's what I'm going to do. Um, oftentimes when people read Romans, I feel like they're coming into like a movie at the halfway mark, and they've, they don't know how people got where they are. They don't know the backstory. Um, so like when I was in college, like I never saw Titanic. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and there was, there was like, it came in like a VHS, but like a, a double set VHS. And I would always manage to walk in on people when they have the second VHS in. And so you walk in and there's a boat like this and there's people falling in the water. And I missed the whole thing. I don't know what happened. I mean, I know what happened because I, I know history. But you kind of step into this halfway thing. Well, who are these people running around shooting guns while the boat is sinking? I don't know what's happening. So I feel like that's how people read the book of Romans. Um, there's a backstory to why Paul wrote the book. I'm going to tell you that backstory. We're going to read a little bit of chapter 14. All of this is going to come from Romans 12 through 16, the last four chapters of the book of Romans. And if you understand that, you'll end up understanding the rest of the book. So I'm going to teach you that, okay? So um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to magically go to Rome, all right? So let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. Allow us to be present here with those that we love to affirm the good things that are all around us, um, to affirm the love of God, the divine center of the universe. Um, I ask that you would 
Um, help us to remain in that, to dwell in that love, and lead us to a place right now of um, open hearts so that we could receive whatever message it is that you have for us. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so the book of Romans. We know a lot about it. We know a lot more than you think would be possible to know about the book of Romans. We know a lot about the church in Rome. Um, So first off, the book of Romans was written in the winter of 57 to 58 AD. So like December to like February of the year 58. That is when the book of Romans was written. Um, it uh, It was written obviously to a group of Christians in Rome. This is 23, 24 years after the crucifixion of Jesus by the Roman Empire. Um, Paul writes this letter. It's written from the city of Corinth. He was likely Paul sitting around with a group of friends in a courtyard um, composing this letter. Um, if you read the end of the book of Romans in chapter 16, you're going to see a big list of names. Uh, many of those people would have been in that space, in that courtyard of a, of a Roman house in Corinth with Paul. Uh, it was, it was, the outline was made. None of them were literate enough to really write well. So they hired a man named Tertius. He's mentioned at the end of the book. He even says, hi, I'm writing this letter, Tertius. Um, and he is the one that they hire. He's a friend of theirs. He's a scribe. Being, um, being literate in the ancient world didn't necessarily mean you could write. It meant that you could read um, and that you knew a lot. So they hire this man, and he writes this letter. It's given to a woman named Phoebe. Uh, she's the courier. In the ancient Roman world, Phoebe would represent Rome. Uh, would, I'm sorry, would represent the writer of the letter, who is Paul. So they hire Tertius. They write this letter. Paul takes Phoebe aside. She's a deacon from a local city uh, just outside of Corinth named Cancrea. She's a leader in the church. And he takes her and says, look, you're going to take this letter that I wrote to the Roman church. I'm going to teach you everything about it. You're going to learn all about it. You're going to learn how to preach it. You're going to learn how to do it as I would do it. So, you know, we read the Bible today. We just kind of read it. These people were performing it. And this woman in the first century would have been, Paul would have taught her to use his own voice inflections, his own mannerisms. He would have taught her everything. Then he would have taught her the theology of it. He would have taught her to answer every question that anyone would have had about this letter. And then he sent Phoebe to Rome with this letter to preach it in the five house churches in Rome at the time. Now, um, I'm going to back up a little bit because um, 10 years before Paul writes this letter, the church in Rome looks wildly different. Okay? Here's like a, a rendering of, of late first century Rome. There is no rendering of beginning of first century Rome. Um, so this here didn't exist, this uh, amphitheater, um, the hippodrome, none of this was here. That would have been torn down. This, the other side of the river basically would have looked like this side of the river. Okay? Now, the earliest known Christians in the city of Rome were Jewish Christians, nearly all of them. Um, this is a time when Judaism was considered a sect of... Uh, I'm sorry, Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism. Um, they met in the synagogues. They, they lived... The earliest Christians in, 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 uh, in Rome lived in the Trastevere, on this side of the river. The synagogues were on the other side, so every day they would travel over there, and eventually Christian settlements popped up in the Aventine and in the Palatine. Okay? This is where the earliest Christians lived, uh, ten years before Paul writes this letter, there may have been 50 Christians in the whole city of Rome. Jewish Christians. We like to think it was this massive church. It was not. Um, so, around the year 49, actually in the year um, 49. Oh, first off, I want to tell you, tell you about their living conditions because this is fascinating to me. Um, the early Christians, believe it or not, were the poorest of the poor in, in the city of Rome. These areas where they lived... Um, were disgusting. They were garbage dumps. So basically, in the ancient Roman world, there was no such thing as 
waste management of Rome. Okay, they didn't drive around in trucks and pick up all the garbage. They threw all the garbage in the street. Um, and the garbage basically was, was all the food that they had left, hadn't eaten yet. Um, any animals that died would be thrown in the street. Any human excrement, anything like that would be thrown, human waste, thrown in the street. Um, and those fountains that were all over the city of Rome, they weren't contained. They flowed freely down the streets and they were self-cleaning. Um, it washed the water. The water washed the streets all the way down to the river um, where it washed out into the water and drifted away. The Christians lived at the bottom of all the hills of the streets. By the way, did you see that? Let me back that up. Um, these little steps across here. So you don't step in the garbage while you're going across the street, right? The curbs are nice and high. Water flowing and garbage. Where the Christians lived um, was the bottom elevations of the city and all the garbage and the refuse ran right to their neighborhood and kind of sunk into the river there. It smelled terrible. It was disgusting. Um, the early Christians were, were terribly poor. They had no power. Very, very poor people. Now, um, in the year 49... Emperor, this guy, Emperor Claudius, issues uh, a decree exiling all the Jews in the city of Rome, including the Christian Jews. They all have to leave. He says, we're just going to be Greco-Romans now. I, I don't want these Jews here. He kicks them all out. Um, and so they're gone. The only people that are left is a handful, like maybe five or six Roman Christians who had been worshiping with the Jews. So these Jewish Christians are gone for 10 years. Um, in the late 50s, or all right, right around 56, 57, they start coming back. Um, and the Jews, the Jews begin to return um, to the city of Rome. And they're destitute, they're poor. They're coming in groups of one and two. It's not like a, a group of Jews coming. They're ones and twos wandering back into the city, trying to find a place to live, to restart their lives. They go back to where they lived before, the disgusting area um, of, of refuse the, that, that we just talked about. And they go and find these churches. Um, and the, in the ancient world, the churches, the people all live together in these sort of apartment-style buildings built around a courtyard. So the first thing that they notice when they come back to Rome is that the demographic had totally changed. The church, when Paul wrote the letter in 58, was now 100 people, five house churches, spread throughout these three areas of Rome. 100 people. There, there's probably, there's, there's probably about maybe 300 people in this room. This is three times the size of the Roman church. Okay? That, when I first learned that, it was pretty eye-opening. Um, we're not talking about a massive political action group, all right? A small group of people living together. We know where they met. We know who their house church leaders were, who the pastors of their churches were. Um, we know how they lived. Um, so these Jews come back, and the whole demographic has changed these Roman Christians are now running the whole show, the whole church, and they don't believe the same things that the Jews did, that the Jewish Christians did. The Jewish Christians were Jewish, so they kept the Jewish festivals, and they kept the, the, uh, the Jewish dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, and they, they didn't eat pork, they didn't eat shellfish, they observed the Sabbath, there was yearly festivals, seven of them every year that they observed every single year, and it was really important to them. This was how they believed God was to be worshipped. And so they come back in and they find a few things. First thing they find is that the beliefs had changed in the church. The, 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 the Gentile Roman Christians, they didn't observe um, the dietary restrictions that the Jews did. By the way, the Jewish people, they didn't believe that you were allowed to eat meat, even if it was kosher, 
if it was if it was burnt and cooked on an altar sacrificed to a pagan god it was off limits it was considered unclean and all the meat in rome was cooked that way there was so many idols and so many um, pagan sort of grills lack of a better word that everyone is grilling food on these altars or like and, and they all had little idols around them and and so basically the jews literally became vegetarians in all of rome um and Paul talks about that in this book, by the way. So, the beliefs had changed. The, the, the Romans are eating whatever they want. They're eating strange food. They're literally eating food sacrificed to idols. They're eating uh, pork and shellfish. They're eating whatever they want. They don't hold the same convictions that the Jewish Christians did. Um, the worship had wildly changed. The Gentile Roman Christians did not observe the Sabbath. Um, they didn't do the daily Shema prayers. They didn't do um, the festivals the feasts, the, none of it. And the Jewish people believed this was atrocious, that this was offensive to God. First off, that you would eat those things. Second, that you wouldn't worship God in the way God demanded you worship, that they believed. And so what happened was, there, there began to be this huge split in the church between what today would qualify as conservatives and liberals in the church. Does this at all sound familiar to you? Um, even outside the church, this is the split. Um, this is the Roman world that they were living in. Um, as far as like the, the church world is very similar to the American church today. And the things that we are dealing with are the same things that they were dealing with. So the book of Romans, when we read it and we just say, no, it was Paul writing a letter about justification. You miss the whole premise of what Paul was doing and the problems that were rising up in the early church. How were they to deal with living under this empire who was hostile to them? How were they to deal with um, being the most impoverished people in the city? How were they to deal also within the church with their own divisive issues that they were fighting over? Maybe you have experienced this. And Paul, in the book of Romans, especially the last four chapters, especially chapter 14, he has an idea. He says, here's what you should do. Here's how you should deal with this. You have all these separations in the church. You're, you're beginning to separate yourselves from each other. You're beginning to say, well, we're not going to worship with you, and we're not going to worship with you. You guys are too liberal. They're like, you're a fundamentalist. We are not going to worship with you. And Paul from Corinth hears about this, and he writes to them. And he has, basically, I'm going I'm to whittle this down. I'm going to do what I don't do, okay? Um, I'm, I'm boiling a sermon down to four points, okay? And I never do this, ever. So I'm doing this today, though, because we're not going through the whole book of Romans today. Now, um, so there's four things that Paul really demands um, of the church that he believes will solve their problems and bring unity to the church. The first thing he says is, he says, accept them as your brothers and sisters. I know we talk to each other. We talk to people. We say things like, he's my bro. She's my sis. We're friends. We're close. They're like, they're like family. Paul doesn't say bro. Or sis. Paul says sibling. The word that he uses over and over in the book of Romans is this word adelphoi. The word adelphoi is the legal term for siblings. Like you would say, so I could say, like I put my arm around somebody and say, this is my brother. But I wouldn't put my arm around them and say, this is my sibling. They're like, you look nothing alike at all. Paul, um, that's the word he used for these people. People that he wildly disagree with. He starts off calling them adelphoi. My brother or my sister. Um, 
this really is the first step to how we're supposed to think about each other in the church. Um, I, I, I'm not here to think of you as a congregation, as members, as a class, as anything. You are my brothers and sisters. This is how we are to view each other. And you could see this. So if the first thing I want to point out as we get going is I'm going to jump to 15 first, and we're going to spend the rest of the time in chapter 14. But at the beginning of 15, you see something interesting. He says, we who are strong. Um, now, these names, there's, there's, there's a term called strong, and there's a term called weak um, in the church. The majority of the, of the Christians in the church were, again, Greco-Roman Gentile Christians. They were the majority. So the majority gets to choose what we're going to be called and what the other people, the other side's going to be called. And they called themselves the strong, right? We're strong. Our faith is strong. We're allowed to eat meat, sacrifice to idols. We don't have to keep all these festivals and stuff because we're the strong ones. You're weak in your faith. You need these constant reminders and to be patted on the head. And this is how they would talk to them, right? Don't act like we don't do this today to the people who we disagree with, right, Snowflake? Right, that's that. That's what that is. Okay, now, um, okay. So Paul says, we who are strong. He says we because Paul is actually one of them. Paul actually believes that, no, all the meat is fine to eat. Although he was raised a Jewish rabbi, he understands the message of Jesus as freedom. He says, he says all things are clean, but not all things are beneficial. And so there's this faith and love that you live by, okay? And that determines whether or not something is right or wrong. So Paul starts off, he says, we who are strong, because he's with them, he agrees with them, and so he's going to talk to them. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul didn't come up with these terms, by the way. These are derogatory terms when you call the other people the weak. He's using their language. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Um, now, you go, to, you go back to chapter 14, you begin in verse 1. It says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. That's important. He calls them disputable matters. There's a reason Christianity has this thing called the Nicene Creed that all Christians hold to. Because these are what's considered indisputable matters. We have it on our website. We hold that as our, our statement of faith. Um, the Nicene Creed, the oldest accepted creed in all of Christendom. Um, everything else Christians fight about and separate themselves by, all these social issues, all these other means of interpretation and eschatology and, and all these other things, these are what Paul calls disputable matters. They do not separate us from our siblings, our brothers and sisters. They are disputable. There is a reason why there are biblical scholars on both sides of most issues. Because they are disputable. There's evidence you can look at and you can say, well, that's pretty convincing. And you go to the other side, well, that's pretty convincing. And Paul realizes this. These are disputable matters. Okay, we go a little farther. Uh, verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. Paul literally says, oh, by the way, I've heard this verse used to, to bash vegetarians. His faith is weak, only eats vegetables. Um, you can make the Bible say, I guess, whatever you want. Okay, so one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. So what he's saying is, you may not realize it, different people's faith, even in Christianity, in the church, will only allow them to do certain things and not other things that other people's faith will allow them to do. 
There's a spirit of God inside of you guiding you and convicting you. And you can do things that other people cannot. And I know it's really hard to wrap your mind around. But something that some other Christian can do may not be okay for you. And Paul addresses this. As confusing as that is, Paul addresses this and he goes farther into it. And we'll get there um, in a bit. So basically, there, what your faith allows you to do. Let's go a little farther. Um, so the first thing he wants is accept people as brothers and sisters. The second thing that Paul demands of the church that is, that is divided on important issues to them is he says, don't judge each other. So don't judge each other. Um, oh man, I'm way off my nose. Okay, don't judge. Romans 14, 3. Uh, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So first off, he talks about contempt. You must not have contempt for those you disagree with. They are not your enemy. They are somebody that you disagree with. No matter how important the thing is, they are not your enemy. They are your brother and sister in Christ. They believe Jesus is Lord, just like you do. And so they are your brother. They are not, you cannot build up contempt in your heart for people whom you disagree with. That is outside the realm of what Christians should feel towards people as contempt. It is not an okay position to hold for Christians. And then he goes farther. Um, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. He says, you, you don't accept this person as your brother or sister in Christ, even though they claim Jesus as Lord. You don't accept them because, uh, because you disagree with them, even though God has accepted them. So what basically is happening is you're not being Christ-like. Christ has accepted them. You must accept them. This is very difficult to hear. It's very complicated, and it raises a lot of like, problems in my head all the time. But this is what Paul believed the solution was. We'll get to why in a bit, why he believes all this. Okay. Um, So he says, uh, okay, verse four. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Um, So basically, you have to understand that they don't answer to you. You are not the judge. They have a judge. They have someone whom they are serving. Everyone, I believe, will answer for the way they live their life, for the things that they've done. Uh, my grandfather, he died when I was like 17, Preston Peak Jr., Preston Peak Phillips Jr. Um, he used to always remind us, um, he used to always remind us when we all get to heaven, what a day of correction that will be. Basically, we're all wrong. We just don't know it yet. I had a, I had a professor um, that used to say things like, um, now, I'm going to teach you a lot of things. 20% of these things are wrong. I don't know which 20% that is. <laughs> but there's this humility with which you're supposed to move through your life, okay? Knowing that you, have, you answer to God, they answer to God, they don't answer to you because you're not God. Um, next up, uh, verse 10. Um, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. There it is right there. You are not the one who they will stand before. You're not. You're not the one. Um, verse 12. So then each of you, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Um, so there's a couple of uh, Greek words here that are of interest to me. The word, the word judge, the word judgment 
If you read this in the Greek, the word judgment and the word for that's translated as make up your mind, it's the same word. It's the word krenane. He's making a little kind of a rhyme uh, in the Greek. Um, so he's basically, instead of judging each other, judge how you can best keep each other from falling away. Like, instead of judging each other, judge yourself and what you can do to lead them towards health. That's what Paul is telling us. That's what he's telling his church. That's what he believes they should be focused on. Don't judge their actions. Judge your actions and how you can help them live a healthier, more righteous, humble, joyous, forgiving lifestyle. Um, And so the next thing we come to that Paul wants the church to understand after don't judge is that you should have conviction with conscience. You should know what you think and you should know why you think it. Um, And this to me is... This to me is really important because people, people, when they disagree with me, they have a position and they say, do you agree with this or whatever? And I say, I don't, it, it doesn't matter whether I agree with you on that. I want to know how you got there. And that is really important to me. Um, look at what Paul says. Uh, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. So we're talking about the festivals or, or the Sabbath, but it's really a placeholder for everything. Some people consider one day as, as like, no, this is the day we're going to worship God. Other people come to God and they, they come to the realization that like, no, every day is holy. It's all a gift. Everything is spiritual. And they're like, no, these particular things are going to be really important and they're going to center me. And Paul says, that's fine. It, it all belongs. And he goes farther. Uh, another person considers every day like, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Each of you should know how you got there and why you believe what you believe. Um... Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains uh, does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So, I mean, I always have questions about people. How, do you, how did you come to the conclusions that you have about God? Were they given to you by your family? Were they just inherited and never really tested or researched? Were they, um, is it just something that you just kind of, yeah, it's the tribe that I'm part of. Um, because a lot of people hold things incredibly tightly that simply are tribal and are not backed up by anything that they have ever really researched and studied other than to like confirm that they're right. That stuff bothers me a lot. It's lazy. It's not helpful. Um, It hurts us all, really, is what it does. Um, Did you decide that it fits, it just fits your lifestyle better? Like, this just fits. And so here I am. Um, did you receive it from your tradition, from your parents, all of it? Did you fully understand what you read when you, when you read that thing in the scriptures or whatever? Or, or are you being lazy maybe in your interpretation of it? Are you doing your work? This is one of the reasons we have church. This is one of the reasons we have elders and pastors is, um, because we study these things constantly. If you want resources to read, I'm not just going to give you one resource and say, here, believe this. I'm going to give you a wide range of things. And I'm going to say, here's how Christians have interpreted this throughout history. Read. Come back to me in a week after having studied and plunged the depths of this thing. I want to know where you're at. I want to know what changed. I want to know how you got here. You have a brain. God gave it to you. Use it. Um, Don't be lazy. Um, Also, are you holding your convictions with the proper humility? The whole 20% thing. Here's what I believe. I'll admit I could be wrong. There's a proper level of, of humility in Christian faith. Um, there should be, at least. Um, okay, the next one is after, uh, after, don't be, after having convictions with conscience is don't be divisive. Um, we are connected to a lot of other organizations, denominations, churches. I don't agree 
with a lot of what I hear with the people that we are connected to. But I don't separate myself from them. I don't. They are my brothers and sisters. And there are some things that they are doing that are beautiful and wonderful. There are some things that they're doing that I think may be harmful. And so I go to them and I ask them. And I test them. But I don't do what we've tended to do over the last couple hundred years. Just divide and separate myself from them. That is not what we should be doing. Read uh, Romans 14, 22 and 23. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Hold on. Did you know that was in there? Like, read that again. I want you to ponder that this is in the Bible. Like, as you're scrolling Facebook and you see something you disagree with, maybe just keep scrolling, right? Okay, here we go. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And this is, this is a good one because um, oftentimes you hold a conviction and you're forcing it on everyone else. Um, they may, their faith may demand a different conviction on their end. And by you demanding they go along with your personal conviction, it could literally be harming their faith. Paul says, think about how that could be a stumbling block to people to quench that what I, what I believe is right in my heart. You're asking me to go against it. Paul says that's, that is not the posture of Christians in the church. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. The, the place where you are moving from should be faith. And if you're confused, if you have doubts, pause. It's okay to say, I don't know. It really is okay to say that. I say it all the time. People come up and they ask me, what about this? What does this mean? I don't know. But we can do the work together, maybe find some answers. Um, rather than just accepting the first, the first stupid thing you Googled on the internet. Okay, now, so Paul's intention for the church really can be boiled down to this fourth thing, but this raises questions for me. Why, where does he get this? First off, does he really think this will work? It's hard to fathom how Paul could just come up with these things on his own unless he was getting them from somewhere. So the question I have is, why? How does Paul come to this, uh, this idea? And, and that's a huge deal, understand. And this he begins to lay out in 15 because he starts giving these similar commands and then he points to Jesus over and over. He points to the, the example of Christ. So verse 2 and 3, he says, Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up for even Christ did not please himself. You live a life not for yourself. You do things that benefit other people. You are not here to please yourself, to get yours. You are here to pour yourself out for those around you like Christ did. Verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ had. So he wants two people on different sides to have the same mind, to have the mind of Christ. Not separate themselves by these tertiary different subjects. To come together... And have the mind of Christ. Okay? Um, so basically, he's, he's going to go to them. He's going to look at one side. He's going to look at the, he's look at the, the, the progressives in the church. He's going to say, are you, are you being Christ-like? In your demands for the other side that you disagree with. Are you being Christ-like? And then he's going to go to the conservatives. He's going to say, hey, are you being Christ-like? The things you're demanding of these other people? Separating yourselves, the words you use for each other, the way you speak to each other. Are you at all 
representing how Jesus lived his life. Jesus, um, who if he was God in the flesh, um, sure did lower himself and didn't run around condemning all the people that he disagreed with. Instead, he actually spread the table and he sat at the table with all these different people, with zealots, first century sort of Palestinian terrorists, right? Um, and then there were these, these prostitutes and these um, Levitical priests and there was these Pharisees and there were these just regular Jewish peasants all gathered together, Roman centurions. He'd sit them all at the same table and pour himself out and feed them and fill them up and teach them. Verse six, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify God, uh, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want lots of different, he wants one mind, one voice. He wants his people unified. Um, verse seven, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So the constant theme that he goes back to over and over and over again is, is this, is honestly, it's what, it's what theologians today call Christoformity. It's what's, it's, it's, Christoformity is it's the idea of aligning your, your relationships with other people um, and the actions uh, that, that you live out towards other people, aligning them with exactly how Christ lived his life. When you receive power, it's sort of using that to lower yourself and lift other people up the way Jesus did. Instead of looking from, I've heard it put like this, instead of looking for a, um, a throne to rule from, you're looking for feet to wash. That's what you're doing. This is what it means to live this life. Now, all of this, all of this is centered in Paul's mind around one very important context. Very, very important to understand. In verse, chapter 14, verse 17, he uses a phrase that Paul really only uses two or three times in all of his writings. Paul, Jesus always mentions the kingdom of God. Paul never mentions the kingdom of God except for like three times. And this is a unique one because the king word he uses for kingdom is this Roman word, Basalia. Um, and he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So here's, here's what this means when you break this all apart. Um, everyone in the ancient world believed, uh, the Jews did, they believed the kingdom of God was only in righteousness. And that was it. That's what they would say. The kingdom of God is found in righteousness. In not sinning, in being this sort of island of purity, keeping yourself free from everything and everyone who was sinful. And that's how the kingdom of God would be found, when everyone finally lived by the laws. Paul, he brings out this word. He says, the kingdom of God, he says, is not a matter of eating and drinking. That's the laws that they were keeping, okay? But of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is a new addition. And this is a big deal. Because I want you to think about this. Um, there's this idea of righteous indignation where somebody who looks at themselves as the right moral one steps back and hates everyone else who is not right and moral. But Paul pairs righteousness with peace and joy. In other words, righteousness without peace is not righteousness. God's intention for his people is for him to be right, not only with God, but right with other people. To be reconciled with people, to be loving towards them, to be unified with them, to be moving towards them, to be open to everyone to have a heart that is looking all around them for the ways that they can better display the love of Christ for the world around them. Any kind of righteousness that is set back from people and separated and says, I'm over here living this way 
by myself, cut off from the rest of everyone else. That is not righteousness. Righteousness demands peace. But there is a kind of peace that also is not righteous and is not really peace. It's that kind that you experience like on Thanksgiving, right? You're all sitting around the table and everyone's keeping their mouth shut. And you, you know, why aren't you, why don't you talk about certain subjects? To keep the peace. That is not peace at all. That's silence. That's silence indignation, okay? Paul would say, peace without joy is not peace. If you can't rejoice with this person for the joyful things that they're experiencing in their life, then you are not at peace with them. If you can't mourn for them, in chapter 13, he goes deep into this. If you can't mourn with people who are mourning, then you are not at peace. You are not in a righteous position. You are not living in a way that you should. You are not living the life that is Christoform, the way it should be. Okay? Now, again, Paul believed this would work in the church. And the reason he believes it'll work in the church um, is because he believed that the way peace was brought into the world was wrong. Okay, there was this, there was this mode in the ancient world um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the government of Rome. They used to say, Pax Romana. Pax Romana meant peace through Rome. How did peace happen through Rome? Well, again, I talked about it last week. They would come in with their army and they would say, you're Roman now. And if you didn't say, okay, Caesar is Lord, they killed you. So peace was backed up by the sword. It was held up by fear. The Christians living in Rome, the Roman Christians, began as they gathered in their community, instead of saying Pax Romana, they took that idea, they turned it on its head, and they used the propaganda against the Roman Empire, and they used to say Pax Christi, peace through Christ. Now, this has this whole other meaning when you turn it all upside down. So Pax Romana was held up by the sword by conquering your opponents. People who don't think like you, you make them think like you. You conquer them. You defeat them. Okay? It, it involves fear. It involves a sword. Fear of ostracism. Like, we're going to kick you out of the community. All right? You'll, we're going we're gonna to take your book royalties. We're going to shut down your albums. We're going to do everything we can to shut you up because we disagree with you. That is Pax Romana. Pax Christi is peace through the cross through serving other people. It's peace through grace. You know why Paul starts every single letter with grace and peace? Because the Roman people used to start their letters by saying Pax Romana. Victory by the sword. Victory by military might. Conquering your enemies doesn't bring you Christ-like peace. Serving and loving your enemies does. Your opponents, those whom you disagree with. This is how it really works uh, in the church. This is how Paul intended for it to work in the church. In other words, in other words, victory through Rome is found through conquering our enemies. Victory through Christ is found through giving them grace. What Paul, um, Paul's letter is written with a view towards the idea that a graceful church who can gather and accept each other despite glaring differences because Christ has accepted them first. And so you see, and you affirm, yes, we do not see things eye to eye. We do not have the same theologies. We do not have the same political views. We are vastly different. But what the world does is they try to conquer each other through victory. I'm going to change your ideas and make you like me. That is Pax Romana. That is not the Christian way. It shouldn't be, at least. It, today it really is. It's supposed to be Pax Christi. We have ideas we disagree about. Jesus is Lord. You don't agree? I'm going to show you Jesus is Lord by serving you the way Jesus would serve you, loving you the way Jesus would love you, moving towards you in the way that Jesus moved towards me. 
And in this way, we take the ideas of the world of dividing ourselves and separating ourselves and warring against each other, and the church is a place of peace and grace, and we flip this whole thing upside down and say, of course we disagree, but that doesn't make you not someone who I love, someone who I, who I associate with as my brother or my sister. Who, you are somebody who is welcome at my table, even though you may want to kill me. This is, re- this is a really hard thing about Christianity that people do not want to see, that they reject every time they see it, but the entire book of Romans is about it. It is there. Christianity um, is difficult. It's supposed to be. Dying to yourself every day. Paul starts chapter 12 with, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifices every day, waking up, pouring yourself out. And the way we remember this is communion. We're going to celebrate communion. Uh, our communion service, you guys, if you will, got out of bed and came, go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Uh, communion is, um, this is the picture of how it works. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. This is how peace enters into the world. This is how salvation enters into the world, healing. This is how resurrection enters into the world. Because if something is going to be reborn, something else first has to die. You and I die to ourselves to bring resurrection to the world to bring salvation, healing, exactly what, as the body of Christ, we should be doing. We do not find peace in the church either by conquering each other and separating from each other. That is how the world tries to find peace, which is why the world has been at war ever since mankind has been writing. That is not the church. God has given us an upside-down kingdom a whole other way. Grace and peace. Not war and peace. This whole other thing. So our communion servers are going to take the elements and going to spread around the room. There's two elements. There's, there's bread, symbolizes the body of Christ, which was broken for us. To show us the powerful broken for the weak, to show us how it's done. Um, the blood of Christ spilled for us, poured out so that you may be filled up. Um, and we do this to liken ourselves to Christ and to remind us um, of, of how things are made right. And so whatever you're dealing with, whatever people you're at war with, the people that you are struggling with bitterness and hatred towards, whatever they've done to you, ask God to help you find forgiveness and love for them. You pray for their, for their guidance. You pray for their flourishing. You pray for their health and you move towards them and you come to the table and you receive the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ spilled for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people and this body. Guide us, help us to learn to live a life that is Christiform. A life that is centered and ordered and and formed by your love for us. Change us. Thank you. In your name, amen. Spend some time, talk to Jesus.